Well, good morning, and thank you for joining with us this morning. And do turn again with me to Acts chapter 4. If you picked up a a diary on the way in, that passage is, is printed in the diary if you don't have a Bible to hand, but please do turn back there. We've um, been on this roller coaster ride in the book of Acts. Uh, this book of the Bible is the story of how Jesus began to build his church in this world, and it is hugely exciting. It's this wonderful retelling of this most extraordinary and most important time in the history of the world, to be honest. Because here we read that God was evidently moving in power in the followers of Jesus. Some of the things we've already seen in this book, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the conversion of thousands of people at a time in response to the preaching of the message about Jesus, miracles done through the apostles, the genuine love and fellowship that Christians had for each other. We might be tempted as we read the book to wish that we had been there. Oh, if only we'd been part of that church rather than this church. But I wonder if today's reading would make you think again. After all, in this passage that Gay read for us, some members of the church sell some property use the proceeds of the sale to help the poor and the needy in the church, and they're struck down dead. I think by far the most common criticism thrown at the church in our age is that it is full of hypocrites, that it is hypocrisy that makes people unwilling to even listen to the Christian message. And they are right insofar as hypocrisy is a horrible thing, and hypocrisy does exist in the church. And these verses of Acts are vital for us, just in case we dare to think it's not such a big deal. God's speaking to us in these verses of Scripture, and He's telling us that hypocrisy is deadly. The tragedy of Acts 5, where this couple find themselves on the wrong end of God's judgment, is set up for us by the beauty of how chapter 4 ends. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is good at giving us throughout this book short little updates, little progress reports on how the church was doing. And what a summary it is in verses 32 and 33 of Acts 4. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What an update. Even though the church has been threatened by the religious authorities, the church, they had instead prayed for boldness to keep speaking the word of God, and that is exactly what happened. With great power, the apostles were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. They kept going. They kept telling people about what they'd seen and heard, and God moved powerfully through what they were doing. 
But what Luke really brings to the fore in this section is this description of what life was in this spirit-filled community. What kind of community did the presence of God bring about? Well, he tells us of the unity of heart and soul, which included the full number of those who believed. This isn't the first time it's been mentioned in Acts, and here we find that such was their sense of oneness, their mutual belonging, that everyone said to everyone else in the church, hey, what's mine is yours. But it wasn't just a saying. I mean, they were committed to one another, and you say, well, how committed? Well, Luke tells us those who, those who owned property or owned land sold them so that they could meet the needs that had arisen in their church family. That is a pretty good test. I mean, Luke is saying these Christians loved each other. Well, how do you know someone loves you? You know they love you when it costs them and they don't flinch. That's a pretty good sign that they love you. When their relationship with you hits them in the pocket, but they care more about you than they do about their own money. That's a pretty good sign. We're being shown here that the followers of Jesus sacrifice for one another. The followers of Jesus sacrifice for one another. And here, Luke gives this very specific example. Um, from verse 34, he introduces us uh, to this man called, uh, to, to Joseph, who's going to have an important role in coming chapters. Now, I don't know, maybe Joseph was, was the first one to get the ball rolling on this kind of sacrificial care for one another, but he was certainly regarded, or his name was associated with this kind of sacrificial love for his fellow Christians. He saw that meeting the needs of these, his fellow believers, that it mattered more to him than keeping the field that he owned. So he sold it. And the phrase that's used a few times in these verses today is, he laid it at the apostles' feet, um, which really just means that he gave it to the guys who were overseeing the church so that it might be distributed wherever the need was. So you see, Barnabas isn't saying, now I'm giving you this, but I specifically want you to give it to him. Barnabas is saying, I want this to be used to meet the needs that are in the church. And he asks those apostles who are overseeing the church to distribute it. And it seems it was a pattern of behavior for Joseph, because this was a guy who had earned a nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. The behavior of Joseph was such that people, I once heard someone say, Barnabas is what they called him when he left the room. You know, they would say, what a Barnabas he is. What a son of encouragement he is to us. And it wasn't just a repeated pattern in Barnabas, it was a repeated pattern in others in the church, because as, as Luke puts it in verse 34, there was not a needy soul among them. Anyone looking on at this community of Christians couldn't help but see that they loved each other. They took care of their own. 
I mean, what's described here sounds radical to us, I think. We become aware of the needs that others have, and most often our response doesn't go beyond, that's a shame that they have to deal with that. It's not often that someone does a Barnabas. So let's think about this a little more. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, this sort of love that Barnabas showed does not come from organizational structures doesn't come from good education, doesn't come from government legislation. What's taking place in this church in Acts 4 is supernatural, divine love on display. God's love abides in these people, and so it pours out of them in this way. Something has happened to them that makes them behave in this unusually generous way And what's happened is they have realized how generously loved they are. Christians realize that they are actually the most needy people of all. We are failures. We've not lived upright lives. We've not honored God who made us. Instead, instead we've lived for ourselves. And that's what the Bible calls sin. That sin is the thing that will forever keep us in spiritual poverty, powerless to help ourselves. But the great message of the Bible is that Jesus, who is God, who is the supremely rich one, he has made himself poor so that we could be made rich through him. And the riches that he promises are not riches of gold and silver. Don't believe anyone who tells you that. But spiritual riches. Because our best efforts to be right with God, they are nothing but filthy rags in his sight. But Jesus comes and he takes our debt of sin on his shoulders and he dies on the cross. And in place of those filthy rags, he gives us all of his right standing with God. His Holy Spirit lives in us and sets us in a new direction. And so what then happens is for the Christian, in gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us, we want to live for Him. We want to love like Him. In our deep need, having been loved so much, how can we now close our hearts to others whose needs we could meet? especially those who also have been rescued by Jesus and love him. Barnabas and others in the early church understood how generously loved they were by Jesus and that through Jesus, they now belonged to these other Christians. This was their family. This explains why they loved each other so much because they understood their own lives and their relationship to each other in this way that the love of Jesus they'd received had to then come out of them in love for others. So where does that leave us today? I guess we should acknowledge that we do live in a different world, 
Uh, the early church did not live in a society where there was such a thing as welfare support. But we must not allow that fact to close our hearts when we read this passage. This Acts church had a spectrum of people within it. And within that spectrum, there was a small minority who were wealthy. And they recognized that they had been trusted with that wealth to use it in a way that honors Jesus. They realized that God had given them these material things so that they could meet the needs that they saw around them in their spiritual family. Their love for their brothers and sisters surpassed their love for their own personal assets because their love for Jesus surpassed everything. And that's John's logic that we read about a moment ago. Why does someone close their heart to the needs of someone else when they see it? Because the love of God is not in them. If we find ourselves slow to love, then we need to go back to appreciating how loved we are in Christ. Because this is where I could, and uh, I have been subject to this as well, this is where I could stand here for the next five minutes and guilt you, couldn't I? I've got a captive audience. I could guilt you. When was the last time you sacrificed something to meet the needs of someone else? Huh? Now, I know that there are some here who have made some significant sacrifices for others. When needs arise within your church family, can you be counted on to use what the Lord has given you? Now, all of that might produce something, but it wouldn't produce what was in this church in Acts 4. Because I must be honest with you, this attitude of love in the early church did not arise from guilt. It arose because people loved Jesus. And they loved Jesus because they knew how much he loved them. Dear friends, we were in the worst kind of poverty. And even in denial about it, Jesus came and rescued us. The most glorious one set aside his glory and replaced it with the shame of a cruel Roman cross. He looked on your need. If you're a Christian here today, you can make that personal. He looked on your need and he gave everything. And when we grasp that that was for me, then it has this remarkable power to loosen our grip on all of our stuff that we cling on to so tightly so that we start to think, well, you know what, it, it, it would only make sense, wouldn't it, for us to have a hardship fund in our church? Wouldn't that make sense? Suddenly, it makes sense that we could say, well, we could have a training fund in our church because that's one of the great needs, isn't it? That, that would make sense. It makes us think again about whether we could sacrifice that time to help someone to sacrifice that energy to invest in someone. And yes, to even be willing to let go of some of our stuff to help someone who needs it far more than I do. And here's the thing that happens. When that is driven by love for Jesus, rather than driven by guilt, 
becomes a joy. It becomes a joy, but only when done from the heart. Because the danger of giving just to impress others is exactly the danger we're shown next when we come into chapter 5. Ice cream is one of those lovely examples of God's common grace. What a lovely thing. And so many varieties these days, you'll never tire of it. And it's especially lovely to share it with someone you love so long as they don't have a big appetite. But you know this, don't you, that this lovely, joy-giving blessing all too often is turned into something harmful because we so easily eat too much. We struggle with self-control when it comes to this particular blessing God has given. That thing that enriches life is then turned into something that ruins us. Well, the transition from Acts 4 to Acts 5 is just that sort of turnaround. This wonderful act of generosity on the part of Barnabas became the very thing that provoked Ananias and Sapphira to sin, and which ultimately was going to be the end of them. In these first 11 verses of Acts 5, we see that hypocrisy in the church is deadly. It's deadly. So what did they do? Well, they did a remarkably generous thing. We can't get past that. They did a remarkably generous thing. They sold a piece of property. That's what we're told in verse 1. They sold it. And they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, just as Barnabas had done. Well, not quite. They had agreed to hold back some of the proceeds of the sale. And I want to say that in itself wasn't the problem. Peter makes this clear, actually, in verse in verse 4, that this couple, they were under no obligation. Do you see that in verse 4? Peter says to them, while, while this piece of property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, it was yours. It was yours to do with whatever you wanted. Nobody told you to do this. Nobody pressured you to do this. The problem was that they told the apostles that the money they were offering was the entirety of the sale. I mean, Ananias doesn't get to speak in chapter 5, but his wife does. Sapphira, in verse 8, is asked, tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yeah, for so much. Let's be clear, if this couple had gone to the apostles and said, we've sold this piece of land and we've decided to give 75% of the money to meet the needs of the church, but we're going to keep the other 25% because, well, we're just not sure about, do you know what? it would have been a cause of great encouragement and rejoicing in the life of the church. But their giving was not about meeting needs. This is what the lie exposes. It exposes why they did it. Not to meet needs. Not to honor God. But to impress people. I can't help but try and fill in the thought process that goes on between chapter 4 and 5. Imagine this couple, they're sitting over Sunday lunch after Barnabas has laid the money at the apostles' feet. And they admire him. Oh, what a thing that was Barnabas did. Did you hear how they spoke about Barnabas? Did you see the tears well up in their eyes as they thought about the sacrifice Barnabas had made? 
oh, if only people would look at me like that. If only people would think of us in that way. Imagine if we got a cool nickname just like Barnabas got. But here's the problem. They wanted those things without actually being what Barnabas was. And so they devise what is a fairly small deception that will make them look more generous than they really are. And no one will know. With all of the focus on people's needs, Ananias and Sapphira forgot that the Christian life, first and foremost, is lived out in the presence of God. Early in the Bible, we read of Adam and Eve being created, placed in the garden, because they were created for fellowship with God. And it's there in that garden, God would walk with them. It's amazing. It's unimaginable for us, isn't it? They had this truly free relationship with God. But we forget, and they forgot, the enormity of dwelling with God. This is no small thing. So when Adam and Eve sinned, it meant that they could no longer dwell with God. There now had, was this deep incompatibility that had entered in, and so God, God had to expel them from His presence. Because as we've been singing this morning, God is holy. In the history of Israel, we read of, of the Ark of the Covenant, which was really a gold box that symbolized the presence of God among His people. Well, one day it's being transported on a cart back into Jerusalem, comes on some unsteady ground, and this poor chap called Uzzah, he reaches out his hand to steady this box, and he is knocked down dead, because no unholy hand can touch the presence of God. God is holy. Humans are not. And so what of the church? I mean, this is what Acts 5 is teaching us. The church is a community of Jesus' followers who love each other, who sacrifice for each other, and it's a huge privilege to belong to it. But friends, this is where God dwells. This is where God dwells. Jesus Christ is in this community by His Spirit. And so if we play these silly games preserving appearances, utterly concerned with getting people to think good things of us, so much so that we will lie about things, hide things away, then we have forgotten what we're here for. Look at what Ananias had forgotten. Verse 4, um, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. He'd forgotten. He thought he was just lying to the other people in the church. They were lying to God. Same for Sapphira, verse 9. Peter says, how is it that you've agreed together to test, what, to test the apostles? To test the church members? No, to test the Spirit of the Lord. As painful as it is to say it, in what they did, this couple were fake. And what they did would easily have convinced the other members of the church. You can never convince God with fakery. Never. 
And so by the Spirit, Peter is given insight into what's really going on. He confronts Ananias with his sin in verse 4, and immediately the judgment of God falls. And Ananias takes his last breath in that moment. And the same thing happens to his poor wife. There's an easy mistake that we could make here. And that is to say, well, this passage is teaching us that everyone in the church needs to be on their best behavior. You need to be good or you might get struck down. That would be the biggest misread of this passage of all. This is the amazing thing. Lying to God is such an offensive thing in God's sight because actually none of us needs to lie. None of us needs to try and put on a show for God. He already knows what is in our hearts. He's not looking for perfection. Here the message is that he's looking for honesty, for integrity, for us to come to him every day and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not interested in us coming and saying, oh, Lord, we've got this all sorted. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. But no, to come and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I know I should be generous, but I find it so hard. Forgive me for loving material things more than you, for loving material things more than your people. Change my heart, Lord. Make me more like Jesus. That's the honesty he's looking for. It's not saying come in perfection, come in honesty and integrity. Lord, I know you are holy and pure, and you know that I am not. You know the impure thoughts that fill my head at times. I confess that I've even delighted in those things. Forgive me, change the desires of my heart. That's what it is to honestly come before God, not to plead our merits, but to confess our sins. You see the difference? But I want to go further. Because this is what the church is called to be. The church is a community of people who love Jesus. But it's a community of people who get things wrong. A community of people who make bad decisions sometimes. Of people who let themselves and others down. We're a community of sinners. And until Jesus comes back, that's what we'll always be. But we're a community of sinners who've been rescued by Jesus Christ. And every day of our lives, for every one of us, is another day where we need to repent of sin, to pray for grace to live for Jesus in our weak way, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what this community of the church is. And it is one of the most shameful turns that the Christian church has ever taken to decide to pull on a facade of respectability and moral superiority. It is the worst kind of lie, trying to convince people, or maybe we're trying to convince God that we're good. Dear friends, it is a denial of the gospel. We're not good. We're sinners. And every day of the Christian life is a day where I need to come before God and repent. I found this so challenging this week. Friends, the message of this passage is that hypocrisy is killing us. It's killing us. So I don't know, maybe you're here today because you like the people 
or you like the music, or you like something about the place, but you've never trusted Jesus. Maybe you're fitting in, but you don't have Jesus. Maybe no one round about you knows that. You're lying to God. And today's the day, right now is the moment to get real. Put away the fakery, let's get real with God. Do you know who dwells in this community? Jesus Christ, by his spirit, the one who is pure and holy and who will judge every soul. But he's also the one who says, come to me. Come in all your weakness. You don't need to lie to me. Come in all your weakness. I'll accept you. I'll forgive you. I'll change you. It's time to get real with Jesus Christ today. But I have to go further than that. I'm going to keep pressing. Because I have a fear that much of Christian culture actually demands hypocrisy. There's part of us that loves hypocrisy. It suits us. Let me give you one example. I'll give you more than one. One example where this comes up is we want, for example, our pastors to be perfect. And many a foolish pastor senses that in a congregation and dares to try and live up to it. And all that that can ever produce in the man is hypocrisy. He will feel the pressure to lie because if he breaks the illusion of perfection and goodness, it might mean that he loses respect or it might mean he gets the boot. Hypocrisy will kill us. So let me, let me, let me put that forward as a, as a proposal. Can, in our church community, can your pastor confess his sins? I hope so, because he needs to, just like everyone else. Friends, I'm having a good week this week, not feeling especially under pressure, but even in this good week, I've said things to people that I'm ashamed of. I have thought thoughts of people that I'm ashamed of. I have, as your pastor here, at times made decisions about serving in the church that have been more about making me look something than about serving you. And I don't say any of that to shock you, but simply to say, folks, this is real life. This is real life that every one of us wrestles with these sins that crop up in our hearts. And so every day for me, as much as for you, is a day of repentance, confession of sin, trusting in the gospel again. Not that my salvation is at risk, but to keep right with God, to remain true to God. This is real life. We all sin. We all need to confess. We all need to repent. We all need to live by God's grace. Is this the pattern for you? Can we do that in this church family, or do we prefer the hypocrisy that says, I'm doing fine? What do we prefer? It starts with every one of us and how we relate to others. So who can you meet with in this coming week to be real about what it means to follow Jesus? We might think in Acts 5 here that God didn't seem to give Ananias much of a chance. Well, the truth is he had multiple opportunities to change direction. This is really just the final act. Notice that 
Peter understands who put this in Ananias' heart. You see this in verse 3. He asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan who put it in his heart. This was a process that this couple had walked through. And it began in their hearts. When they admired Barnabas putting the field on the market. When they made the exchange of title deeds for money. When they deposited their personal cut of the money in a safe place. When they decided to go ahead and meet the apostles. All of these steps, opportunities to confess and repent. Ananias' heart was already burning with pride and an eagerness for personal glory. And I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever you do, guard your heart before God. Don't settle for this false gospel that says you've got to pretend that you have it all sorted out, that you must preserve that appearance at all costs. Don't settle for it. The truly free Christian life is the life that is lived honestly before God and lived honestly before others. And it is only Jesus Christ who can free us to do that. Not surprisingly, the result of this in the church, verse 11, was that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. But as we're going to see next week, it was this fear, this recognizing who it is that dwells in the midst of the church that led the church to keep on growing, to keep on proclaiming, and to keep on seeing God's hand of blessing. So we are going to respond to these verses of Scripture, and we're going to do so by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, which is very fitting, because here we come before God and, well, we are encouraged to assess our hearts before Him. So we're going to do that, and to help us, we are going to sing the first two verses of a hymn, O Great God of Highest Heaven, Occupy My Lowly Heart. Own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power. The second verse reflects on what it meant for us to be brought to faith in Jesus. Let these work in your own heart as a response to God, but as we prepare to remember the Lord Jesus in the Lord's Supper.